0: Let's pray. Oh Lord, you know that my heart and mind are distracted in this text. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would give an abundance of grace maybe even more so than you normally do, as we wrestle through this text. Lord, I pray that you would give me faith to feed your flock this morning, to feed your sheep. Rid me of any temptation or thought Of holding the attention of goats give me faith to believe that your word is sufficient give me faith that you will do your work as your word is proclaimed give me faith to present your word as faithfully as I can for those who love your word and trust that those who don't Lord that you if it was if it be your will 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 call them to yourself Lord I pray that you would help me in my unbelief in Jesus name amen please turn in your copy of God's holy and perfect word to John chapter 3 and verse 16 salvation entering the kingdom of God eternal life these have been the themes of a conversation that's been going on between Jesus and a Pharisee named Nicodemus, and the text that we've been studying for the last two weeks. So far, I've preached two sermons on this popular exchange between the Son of God and this teacher of Israel, and today I finish out this section with part three concerning this great subject of salvation. So, look with me, if you will, starting in verse 16. John chapter 3 For God so loved the world That he gave his only son That whoever believes in him Should not perish But have eternal life For God did not send his son into the world To condemn the world But in order that the world might be saved through him Whoever believes in him Is not condemned But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. I want to tell you where we're headed in this sermon, I'll give you the plan, and then dive in. So far, we've heard two emphases in the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Two themes that keep showing up. Number one, God's work in salvation. And number two, man's response to believe. In simplest terms, what we've seen in salvation, God must act and man must believe you haven't been here the last two weeks those two things have been abundantly clear God must act man must believe and in today's text which which brings this section with Nicodemus to a close John provides an answer to this question in this salvation where we see God acting and man believing the question is this why do some believe and others don't? Why do some people come to Jesus in faith and others walk away from him unconvinced? That's the drive of this text. This is the drive of this message, answering that question. Why do some believe and others don't? Now I want you to know that this is unashamedly a heavier theological sermon. I'm praying that the Lord gives me clarity in speaking and you clarity in thinking. And though it will be heavy at times, especially heavy at times as we walk through here, we're going to end on a very practical note where I hope we'll, we'll drive home on why all this matters. i want to jump in. Why do some believe and others don't? Our text starts with John now I'm preaching a message this morning um, that some of you wish I would be preaching another message. Um, Some, quite frankly, John 3.16 is probably the most popular verse in the Bible. Maybe some of you wish I was preaching a more explicit Christmas sermon, and that will start next week. But John 3.16 is a Christmas sermon. God so loved the world, he gave, right? But even still, I'm not preaching John 3:16 like many of you want me to this morning. It's such a popular verse. Only skimming over it would be an injustice. So the next time we're in John after Christmas, Lord willing, I'm planning to devote an entire sermon to this one verse, John 3:16. But for now, this sermon, I don't want the celebrity nature, so to speak, of John 3.16 to take away from what the overall passage is communicating here. And so what I want to do is I want to focus on 16 to 21, in particular 19 through 21, and then after Christmas come back to John 3.16 alone. So uh, take that as what you will, but that's where we're going this morning here's what I believe is happening in this text. In short, I believe John is using verse 16 through 18 to summarize what Jesus has already taught Nicodemus in their conversation. Now, there's a debate here, and the debate is this. Starting in verse 16, is this Jesus still speaking to Nicodemus, or is it John now providing commentary on what Jesus has taught Nicodemus? And you can read a good scholar's work to investigate which one's more probable. It's not my purpose this morning to spend time on that here and now. But as I've already indicated, if you've listened carefully, I think this is the Apostle John speaking in verse 16 and following. And he appears to be summarizing the great gospel message that Jesus has just given to Nicodemus. If you were here last week, you heard that glorious message of if you look to the Son of Man to be saved, you will be be saved, just like if you look to the serpent on the pole and hanging in the wilderness. And so look at verse 16. It's the classic message of the gospel. You can hear Billy Graham saying it, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You can hear John, uh, Billy Graham saying that. <laughs> Hope I did him justice. He loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That is a Christmas message and Easter message because he gives his son in the incarnation but he gives him over to death. The message of Easter. The motive of God, love. The action of God, giving his son to die. The call of God, whoever believes. The gift of God, eternal life for those who do. We're gonna give this more attention in the new year, but would you believe in the son of God today? and have eternal life that's a a, a gift for you if you would believe verse 17 is the purpose statement of Jesus coming look what it says for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him why did Jesus come he came John says very simply, He came to save. Not to condemn, but to save sinners. If you feel like a rotten, guilty sinner before a holy God this morning, hear this verse ring in your ears. John says, Jesus came to save people like you. And before you say, see, verse 17 says he did not come to condemn. See, Jesus is easygoing. He doesn't care about morals. He doesn't care about how I live my life. It says he did not come to, to condemn. Well, before you conclude that, look what verse 18 says. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why didn't Jesus come to condemn? (laughs) He didn't have to. He came to a world full of people already condemned. But the promise is given in 18. Whoever would believe would not face that condemnation. And notice how critical belief is in this salvation. We've heard this throughout this conversation with Jesus and Nicodemus. Verse 18, John says, If you believe, you're not condemned if you don't believe then you remain condemned and to parallel with it what Jesus said to Nicodemus if you look to the serpent hanging on the pole in the middle, middle of the, 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 the camp you'll be healed if you believe on the son you'll be saved belief or non-belief in Jesus is a central component that determines one's eternal destiny and remember what kind of belief this is not easy believism, as if you just affirm facts. Not traditionalism, where you just say what your family says. Not emergencyism, where you just recognize God in a pinch. No, true belief is looking. It's looking to Jesus in complete dependence on Him to do for you what you know you can't do yourself. Like looking to the serpent on the pole. You look and are healed. You look to Jesus and His work, believing that that alone provides a righteousness to be yours, that, that His death alone provides the payment for your sin, that His resurrection alone provides eternal life. True belief is looking to Jesus in complete dependence on Him to do what you know you can't do yourself. Believing is a, a big deal. It's essential for salvation. If you believe, John says you have eternal life. If you don't, John says you remain condemned. So verse 16 to 18 there is a a summary message of the gospel. It's what Jesus told Nicodemus. Notice it has all the same elements. Do you believe? It's the gospel call. in verse 18 John says some believe and are not condemned and others don't believe and they remain in their condemned state now think of this why would anyone ever refuse such a great salvation I mean who would hear the offer of eternal life no condemnation entrance into the kingdom of God with no threat of death and turn that down Who in their right mind would refuse to believe that? And that's exactly where John goes next. Answering that question is exactly how John closes out this section. Why do some believe and some don't? Why do people refuse to believe? John gives us the answer in verse 19 to 21. This is the culminating point of this section where we'll spend most of our focus this morning. Now I feel confident calling it the culminating point because remember so far the emphasis has been on some believe and others don't. Some perish, some are granted eternal life. Some Believe and are not condemned, and others remain condemned because they don't believe. And John shows the juxtaposition between those two responses, and he gives this ultimate, culminating statement in verse 19. Look what it says: "And this is the judgment." In other words, this is the verdict. This is the concluding point, the ultimate conclusion. Verse 19: The light has come into the world. Remember, John 1 says Jesus is light. The light has come into the world and people love the light, right? People were drawn to the light, right? I mean, who wouldn't want the eternal life and the kingdom offered? Who in their right mind wouldn't want that? The light has come into the world and the world flocked to the light. This is not what it says. Look at verse 19 carefully. The light has come and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. That's why they are condemned because they love the darkness and they hate the light they hide their evil deeds they don't want them exposed they would love the darkness more than believing in Jesus but verse 21 says but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works has been, have been carried out in God Now it gets heavy in this section as we work through it, but I want to tell you simply what John's doing here. John is contrasting two natures. One nature he describes in verse 19 and 20, the second nature he describes in verse 21. And it gets heavy here because the question is not what do people decide concerning Jesus. The question is not, what do people decide concerning Jesus? We know that answer. It's clear in the text. They believe or they don't believe. So the question is not, what do they decide? The question is, why do they decide what they decide? Why do they respond to Jesus the way they do? See, John is taking us another layer deep. Not what is your choice, but why did you choose that? And John points to two natures to provide the answer to why some believe and others don't. So I want to look at these two natures one at a time. The first nature John describes here is the depraved nature. The depraved nature. This is seen in verse 19 and 20. And this is the judgment. The light is coming to the world. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be Exposed. Now I hope your nose is in the text as we're working through this. You'll get lost if it's not. I want you to notice four characteristics of the depraved nature from this text. Look at verse 19 and 20 as I walk through these. The light came into the world, and number one, people loved darkness. Number two, people preferred darkness, as seen in the language of rather than the light. Number three, Verse 20, people hated the light. And number four, verse 20, people avoided the light. It says they do not come to the light. So in summary, listen to the depraved nature by this text. The depraved nature loves darkness, prefers darkness, hates the light, and avoids the light. Why would the depraved man love darkness and prefer darkness over the light? Verse 19 tells you because their works were evil. In short, it's who they are. The depraved man loves the darkness, prefers the darkness because he himself is darkness. Why would the depraved man not come to the light? Verse 20 tells you, lest his works should be exposed. It's like you have your hand in a large jar of honey. Honey. For some reason you do that and you have your hand in a large jar of honey when you're by yourself sin tastes sweet but when you get caught it's sticky and makes a mess right and so it's all over your hand And you're about to be dragged into the public square, into the light where everyone will see the sin all over your hand. And it's just dripping from your hand. And as you're being dragged into the public square, you're trying to to wipe it off and you're trying to hide it. You're trying to shake it off and it just won't come off because sin is sticky and messy. And as you're being dragged out the door, you see a machete and at the last second, you chop your hand off just to keep it from being exposed. That's what John says about the depraved man. We don't come to the light because we don't want our works exposed and we'll do anything to keep them hidden. Verse 19 is so clear. The light comes and this, this people responds to Jesus by hating him, avoiding him because he's darkness and they don't want to face him. And before you think that this big, bad, scary, depraved nature is like a virus just out there somewhere mingling among some group of people, but is nowhere close to you, let me tell you the most sobering news of the morning. The Bible teaches that the virus is in your veins. All of you, apart from Christ, Everyone born in this state, everyone is born with this totally depraved nature, which means that you in and of yourself, in your natural state before God, you love and prefer darkness and you hate and avoid the light. This corrupt and sinful nature has been passed down to us. We've inherited this original sin and fallen nature from Adam in the garden. Paul teaches this in Romans chapter 5 verse 12 where he writes, quote, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. Again in Romans 3.10, no one is righteous, no not one is exactly what Lenny read earlier in our service. This dead, corrupt, depraved nature hates the light. Prefers the darkness. Eighteenth-century preacher George Whitfield wrote about his understanding of his own depravity from a very young age. He wrote, "Quote: I can remember such early stirrings of corruption in my heart as abundantly convinces me that I was conceived and born in sin." That in me dwelleth no good thing by nature and that if God had not freely prevented me by his grace, I must have been forever banished from his divine presence. This corruption of heart that John is sp- describing here in the depraved nature, it's a nature that's spread to everyone. It's why you and I battle with Pride. It's why your two-year-old says, no, daddy, in defiance. See, we do not become depraved because we sin. We sin because we are depraved. It's the nature of mankind from conception. And you might say, hold on a second. I mean, I haven't done anything evil. I mean, I've done minor sins, but I'm no murderer. I'm not a sex trafficker. I'm not a terrorist or an arms dealer. I've done minor things. I'm not done evil things compared to others out there. I don't really love darkness, do I? But friend, God does not assess your sin by comparing your life to the habits of known criminals, but to the holiness of his known character. The standard is not, are you as evil as them? The standard is, are you as holy as God? Ask yourself that this morning as you sit there. Am I as holy as God? Feeling the weight of this, George Whitfield wrote about being haunted by memories of, quote, early acts of uncleanliness. He remembered being addicted to lying, filthy talking, foolish jesting. As a young boy, He would help his widowed mother with her bills and he remembered stealing money from his own mother to quote, satisfy what he called sensual appetites for buying fruits, tarts, and other treats. If you're familiar with the early theologian Augustine, he too regretted the manifestations of early depravity. He once stole pears from his neighbor, not because he needed food, but because, quote, he only wanted to enjoy the theft and sin of itself. Recounting the sins of his life, Whitfield later concluded, quote, if I trace myself from cradle to my manhood, I can see nothing in me but a fitness to be damned. And friends, that's all of us. See, the standard is not, are you you as evil as them? The standard is, are you as holy as God? And the Bible teaches that we have all fallen short of that standard, which indicts us as the evil and wicked sinners that we are before a perfect and holy judge, and we deserve complete condemnation. This is the first nature John introduces, the depraved nature of man. It's so clear in the text. Jesus comes, and the people prefer, they love, prefer darkness. They hate the light and avoid it. The second nature John describes is the born-again nature. Now, this one's a little harder to see on the surface, but if you dig, you'll discover it's truth. So have your Bibles open in your lap, on your phone, whatever it is. Notice what verse 21 says. John's starting to describe the second nature, verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. See, immediately you can see there's a contrast. Some already hated the light and avoided it, but now verse 21 says, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So John is contrasting those of verse 21 with those of verse 19 and 20. The depraved nature hates the light, but John says in verse 21, whoever does what is true comes to the light. So to understand what John is saying here, we need to understand this phrase, whoever does what is true. What does that mean? I mean, we know what it means if he would have said whoever believes what is true, we know what that means. Or whoever says something true, we know what that means. But what does it mean for someone to do something true? We're helped here by knowing what John has said elsewhere in his writing, concerning the idea of doing what is true feel free to turn with me or just listen carefully to 1 John chapter 1 verse 6 make a note in your Bible maybe here 1 John chapter 1 verse 6 notice what John says here if we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness we lie and listen do not practice the truth So in 1 John he uses the language of practicing the truth. And in John 3 he uses the language of doing what is true. Practicing the truth, doing what is true. They're virtually the same. What did he mean in 1 John by practicing the truth? He says, if we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So What is not practicing the truth? John says, if you say you have fellowship with God, but you're not actually walking in the way of God, you're a liar. You're not practicing the truth. And from that, I take it to be true, therefore, that if you say you have fellowship with God and you're actually walking in his ways, then you are practicing the truth. If if not practicing the truth is saying you're with God and you're not following his ways, well then practicing the truth means you're with God and you actually are. Practicing the truth. Practicing the truth. Now back to John chapter 3. He says, whoever does what is true and what is practicing the truth? Being in fellowship with God and walking in his ways. So I take John 3 to be meaning this. Whoever is in fellowship with God and is actually walking in his ways, whoever does what is true, comes to the light. Who doesn't come to the light? People who love darkness, the depraved man. But who does come to the light? Verse 21, those who do what are true. Those who are in fellowship with God and who are walking in his ways. They clearly have different natures. The depraved nature is avoiding the light. John says this person in 21 is coming to the light. So, See the contrast here. The depraved man loving darkness, avoiding the light, and the one walking in fellowship with God attracted to the light. Two natures in contrast. Now here's where it all comes together. I hope for you. Why would John teach this? I mean, really, why all the details about loving darkness and hating light and avoiding the light and coming to the light? I mean, what is his point? Well, we know in this chapter so far, people respond to Jesus in one of two ways belief or unbelief. Verse 18 summarizes it well. Those who believe avoid condemnation, those who refuse to believe remain in condemnation. You believe or you don't. And the text could have ended right there. You believe or you don't. Do you believe? Praise God, do you not believe? Believe today. It could have ended right there, but it doesn't. Why all the details, John, of people loving the darkness and avoiding the light and those coming to the light? John wants you to know why people believe and don't believe. He wants you to know why you believe if you do. John wants us to see that People's response to Jesus of belief or unbelief is actually rooted in something much deeper than a mere surface vacuum choice. John wants us to know that the ultimate verdict of why someone believes or doesn't believe is found rooted in their own nature. John's point is this, people respond to Jesus based on what their nature is toward him. People respond to Jesus based upon their nature toward him. You say, what about free will? I get that question all the time. Of course I believe in free will if you mean You get to decide what you're having for lunch today. But scripture teaches in terms of salvation, your will is bound to your nature. You decide, you make choices based upon what you most want right now. And the Bible teaches that in and of ourselves, we most want darkness. And so we choose freely. We choose absolute freely according to our nature according to our bound nature. So I want to finish by asking two questions and then giving two points of application. I want to wrap this up. Question number one. Why, just to be clear, why do people choose not to believe? John tells you in verse 19 and 20. They see Jesus and they love and prefer darkness more. They see Jesus and they don't want him. You know how this works in unbelief. You can think of someone right now whom you wish would trust in Jesus and you say, why don't they? And as you talk to them, you can see why because they have no interest in him whatsoever. Not ultimately they don't. I mean they may patronize you in a conversation but you know how unbelief works. People don't come to Jesus because ultimately they don't want Jesus. They want everything else. More important things, more pressing things, more interesting things to them. And it's not like they just need to flip a simple switch from going unbelief to belief. The language is not neutral here. They're not on the fence As the saying goes concerning our salvation, it's not like God gets a vote, the devil gets a vote, and we get an unbiased vote to break the tie. People in unbelief already have a side. They love the darkness and are just fine without Jesus. People choose not to believe ultimately because they don't want him. And they don't want Jesus because they love the darkness and hate the light as flowing from their depraved nature. Listen, man's greatest need in responding to Jesus is not to switch from unbelief to belief. Man's greatest need in responding to Jesus is to have a depraved nature switch to a born-again nature so that they can believe. Why don't they believe? Because they don't want him. Number two question, why do people believe? So if if we are all born in this depraved nature of verse 19 and 20, loving darkness, hating the light, having no interest in being bored by Jesus, if that's true for us all, how do any of us get to the new nature of verse 21? The new birth makes the difference. The new birth makes the difference. And listen, isn't this exactly where we're back to the beginning with Jesus and Nicodemus? What was Jesus' first statement to Nicodemus? Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. See, it answers Nicodemus' question ultimately. He keeps asking how, how, how can these things be? And John teaches exactly what Jesus started with. It all starts with God giving a new nature. That's what's needed. Everyone starts out loving the darkness, which is why Jesus said you need to be born again to get a new nature that loves the light. Jesus starts with a new birth and John ends with a new nature. It's the same thing. And yes, belief is absolutely critical. Coming to Jesus is completely necessary. But here's the point. Jesus and John, you don't come in faith until God works the new birth. So why do people believe? People believe because God gives them new natures and they want to believe. Completely willing, they want it. And so they choose to believe. Those who don't come have no desire to come, ever. And those who do come come in born again natures desiring to do so. I have two points of application and we're done. But before I get to that, I want to give a a quote that I think is very helpful and understanding what John is saying here. John Piper provides this comment, which I think summarizes the Apostle John's teaching well. He says, quote, the guilt of not coming to Jesus lies in the heart or nature of man. And the grace of coming to Jesus comes from the heart of God. Or to put it another way, he says, the coming of Jesus into the world clarifies that unbelief is our fault and our depraved nature And belief is God's gift, which means that if we do not come to Christ, but rather perish eternally, we magnify God's justice. And if we come to Christ and gain eternal life, we magnify God's grace. Two points of why this matters. It's been said that John's gospel is deep enough for an elephant to swim in, but we're a Two-year-old won't drown. We've been swimming in the deep end concerning the inner nature of man. If you feel stretched by this, praise God that he gives his people manna that's not cotton candy, but filled with nutrients, even sometimes that we can't fully grasp. Two points why this matters. Number one, knowing how God works in salvation and the inner working of nature of man causes you to be dependent on God in your evangelism a quick story to illustrate this so while we were in Scotland a few weeks ago each morning I would go to the the corner convenience store and get um, a few snacks for the day just in case they were going to feed me that awful lamb's gut stuff that they heat over there so I'd go into this corner food shop beside our hotel and over the week, I developed a friendship with the man behind the counter. His name was Andrew. Andrew was kind, hospitable. He's easy to talk to. And by the end of the week, we were on a first name basis. I'd come in and say, hey, good morning, Andrew. he said, hey, good morning, Donald. On the second to last day that we were there, I shared the gospel with Andrew. And I asked him, I said, Andrew, have you ever heard of Jesus? Oh, yes, of course. Do you know why Jesus had to die, Andrew? (coughs) No, can't say that I do. And so I proceeded to tell him about the sacrifice of Jesus. That Jesus died to pay the penalty for sinners like him. That Jesus rose from the dead to provide eternal life. I went more in depth and we discussed it briefly. And when I finished telling him about Jesus' work, what happens at that point? when you finish telling someone about Jesus' work, what happens? Do you say, gee, Andrew, feels a little breezy in here. You think that's the spirit of the Lord blowing? (laughs) Get ready, Andrew. The the spirit of God might blow new birth on you. Don't do that. (laughs) I told him about Jesus' work and I said, Andrew is there anything right now that would prevent you from trusting in Jesus as your savior now in that moment I don't know what the spirit's doing I don't know if he's going to give new birth or not I don't know if he'll lead Andrew to faith with a new nature or not it's not our job to know that the spirit blows wherever he pleases It is our job to call people to repentance and faith. And so I did. Andrew, is there anything preventing you right now from believing? He thought for a second. He said, No, I don't guess there's any barriers, but let me think about it. See, I left the shop completely dependent on God, praying to God God, unless you work in Andrew's life, he won't be saved. Why? Because Andrew has a depraved nature just like the rest of us, loving darkness, bored by the light. And if Andrew is to go from deadness to life, the spirit of God must work and Andrew must believe. The next day, the very last day, I go in, good morning, Andrew. He said, good morning, Donald. I said, are you trusting in Jesus yet? He said, I have an open mind and last night I started to read some things of what you were talking about and I'm going to keep reading. And so I'm not discouraged. I'm dependent. I'm not discouraged like, oh man, I didn't do good enough and he didn't come to faith. No, I'm dependent. Praying still, God bring Andrew to faith send someone along the path in Edinburgh Scotland right now to share the gospel and to keep watering that seed so that he comes to faith God you can do it would you do it believing that God works in salvation ultimately affects your evangelism because it makes you dependent and not discouraged all right second point why this matters I know I'm going long but this is this is the final one Knowing how God works in salvation ultimately matters because God would have you ascribe to him the glory that he is due for your salvation. If you're saved this morning, God wants you to know it's only because he acted upon you. You're saved for eternal life solely because he caused it to happen, all of it. And you say, well, I believed. Absolutely you believed. And you wanted to believe and you chose to believe because God gave you a nature to believe. And so what do you respond? Thank you. Thank you, God. The glory is his alone and God will have his glory. There's an old hymn that summarizes this work of God really well. So I'm gonna read a lyric of the, the lyric of this hymn and then we're done. But as I read, I want you to imagine a giant banquet hall where God has prepared a feast for those whom he'd saved. And you're sitting in the banquet hall at one of the tables and you're amazed to just be in the room. This is the context of this song, How Sweet and Awful is the Place. Listen to its words. How sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the doors While everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice? and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. And here's our request. Pity the nations, O oh our God. Constrain the earth to come. Send thy victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. And our final desire we long to see thy churches full that all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing thy redeeming grace. Let's pray. Oh Lord, if for those in this room that are trusting in Christ, Lord, we do cry with thankful tongues. Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Lord, why was I a guest? It's for your glory alone. Thank you for giving great salvation to men like me who don't deserve it, to people like this who don't deserve it. But Lord, it is our heart's cry. Would you pity the nations? Would you constrain the earth to come? Would you send your victorious word abroad and bring more strangers home? You can do it for your glory and namesake. In Christ's name, amen.